Well, friends, um, I have good news and bad news, depending on your perspective in life. Does anybody miss the Olympics? Okay, that's the bad news. Does anybody miss the Olympics? No, it's over. One more week of talking about the Olympics. I know the closing uh, ceremonies were on Sunday, but there's one more thing I wanted us to uh, think about, one more theme, and some good stories. I, I love stories, and especially when you hear the backstory to some of the events and some of the um, people in the Olympics, it's uh, fascinating. This is Yusra Mardini. You may have heard of uh, Yusra. 30 minutes after setting off from Turkey, Yusra was a refugee from Syria, and uh, it got so dangerous she and her sister decided, talked to their parents and said, Mom and Dad, we, we've got to get out of here. We can't even practice swimming anymore. Our practice facilities destroyed. We're afraid for our lives. We've got to take a risk and leave. So they set off for Turkey. And 30 minutes after setting off for Turkey, the motor on their boat, their dinghy was meant for six people, but it was carrying 20. So do the math. Okay, figure that out the uh, motor began to fail. And most of the people on board the dinghy could not swim. So Yusra and her sister and two other strong swimmers jumped into the ocean, into the sea, and swam for three hours in open water to stop the dinghy from capsizing. So they eventually reached one of the Greek islands. We were the only four who knew how to swim, she said of the experience. I had one hand with the rope attached to the boat as I moved my two legs and one arm, it was three and a half hours in cold water. My body was almost like done. I don't know if I can describe that. But while she now hates open water, understandably, the memory is not a nightmare for her. I remember that without swimming, I would not be alive. Maybe because of the story of this boat. It's a positive memory for me. So that's Yusra. Then we get on to the story of Abby D'Agostino and Nikki Hamblin. I don't know if you're familiar with this story or not. They were running in their 15,000 meter preliminary heat when they tripped over one another. D'Agostino helped Hamblin to her feet and they went, made sure they were okay and then they continued the race. Um, but then D'Agostino fell because she tore her ACL, which is extremely painful. Hamblin stopped and tried to help her. D'Agostino says, Hamblin, finish the race. Nikki, finish the race. You have a chance to compete. But she refused to leave the American side until a wheelchair could be brought to take her away. Hamblin's admirable compassion for her fellow athlete drew uh, applause from around the world as she gave up any chance at a medal to help her stricken competitor. And now the International Olympic Committee has decided to award both the New Zealander and the American the prestigious Pierre de Coubertin Award. That's for sportsmanship. Only 17 of those have ever been given out in the history of the modern Olympics. One more story. Uh, Yusra was just glad to survive and get to the Olympics. And Abby and Nikki competed well, but didn't finish their event. This is gold Medal winner Wade Van Niekerk 
from South Africa. He smashed a world record that had stood for 17 years in the 400 meters. Many thought this record was unbeatable. And if you look closely, you could see something handwritten on Van Niekirk's rather ordinary-looking shoes. He held up his spikes as he was being interviewed by the BBC, revealing a prayer that he had written on his shoes. Jesus, I am all yours. Use me. Wow. How many athletes do that? In interviews after the race, he spoke of his personal faith and how he asked God to help carry the race. There was no strategy, he said. Smiling, I just went out as hard as I could. I kept thinking someone was going to catch me because I felt so alone in first place. I was thinking, what's going on? What's going on? So I just drove for the finish line. Then the first thing I could think to do when I finished was to fall on my knees to thank God and to give thanks for having the chance to compete against such great athletes. What great stories. All of these stories give me hope that even though the Olympics is filled with greed and commercialism and drug cheating and all kinds of other things, that there's still some stories of goodness here. And this gives me hope. This morning, I want us to think a little bit about, more about hope, especially the hope that followers of Jesus have. It's not because of anything that we do, but it's because of what God has done for us. I'm going to read you a, a passage, just the first few verses of Romans chapter 5. Here's what Martin Luther had to say about this chapter. He said, In the whole Bible, there's hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. So I hope you catch the spirit that Luther's talking about in Romans chapter 5. Just a little bit of uh, preamble. He's talking about, um, in Romans chapter 4, it just describes how God has forgiven our sins and made us right in, in his sight, all legal charges have been dropped against us. And that gives us the context for going on in chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope does not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Let's go back for a minute. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight, since we've been justified is the, is the uh, theological term, that speaks of a legal decree. Romans chapter 1 finds us guilty before the courts of God's law and our own conscience. And then Paul explains, because of what Jesus has done for us, the righteousness of God is given to all who believe. So this guilty sentence that we had 
We're all guilty before God. This guilty sentence that had been pronounced on us because of our rebellion against God, that stubborn human nature, life's all about me, that kind of stubborn attitude that the Bible calls sin, that it naturally resulted in the consequence of estrangement from God and literally a death sentence over that. Since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, the charges are dropped. It's like walking out of court with a death sentence over your head and all of a sudden you're declared free. You are free to travel. And not only that, it's not just God says, get out of here. I'm sure there are some judges and some court officials when people leave and they're acquitted, they go, wow, I'm so happy to see the back end of that person. You know, don't let the door hit you on your way out. God does not say that. When he acquits us of the charges against us, he, does, he never says, don't let the door hit you on your way out. He says, welcome to the family. We have peace with God. That's a little bit different than the peace of God that is present for Christians, but peace with God. Many people don't even aren't even aware they're at enmity with God. It's a little bit like driving down the road, not paying attention, and you see those flashing lights in the rearview mirror. Do you ever have that feeling? You don't have to show hands, but I know some of you are out there. It's kind of a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. Oh, that can't be for me. It must be that other guy. This summer, okay, driving on the Trans-Canada, I had the cruise control on. I had it set at a safe rate. Let me give you a helpful, helpful driving tip. When you drive through the city of Medicine Hat, Alberta, you should pay attention to the speed limit signs on the number one. Because even though you're still on the freeway, apparently the speed limit changes. And they have several, several signs to warn you of that. And the very kind officer who pulled me over and patiently explained how I had broken the law verified that. Anyway, it's kind of a sick feeling when you see the, the lights flashing in the back of the mirror. And so many people don't realize that they're at war with God, that they're disobeying God. But it's true of all of us. But the good thing is that God promises, he makes it possible for us to be at peace with him. It, it, it's interesting the way this happens. All of a sudden, the war with God is over. He wins us over with his love And he doesn't just leave us there. He adopts us into his family. So now we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. And because of our faith, and faith just means help. It's not anything that we could do. Faith is like, ah, reaching for the life preserver when we're drowning. That's all we contribute to our salvation. Faith is grabbing onto that. And because of that, Jesus has brought us into a place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. It's a place of grace. Tim Fletcher, who uh, teaches here on Friday nights, Finding Freedom, he teaches on Sunday mornings at a church called 
place of grace. What a good name for a church, eh? I mean, Elam Chapel is probably a better name for a church, but place of grace isn't bad because my desire and our desire is that Elam Chapel would also be a place of grace and truth where people could meet Jesus. So, because of our faith, because we've grabbed on to God's rescue, offer of rescue, Jesus has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And the tense in the original language in the Greek says this place where we now stand, it's, mean, it, it, it's a started and a continuous action. What that means is we will always be in this place of grace. We will always there. It's not just amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, this amazing grace is available on a day-to-day, regular basis for everyone who follows Jesus. So it's not just that he, he saves us, he, he rescues us, he acquits us in the court and says, okay, be on your way and don't mess up again. No, he adopts us into his family. And he gives us all these privileges and rights of being his children, his dearly loved children. I don't know how God does it, but he thinks apparently... Apparently, he thinks every one of you is his favorite. What? Logically, that doesn't make sense. But God doesn't have to make sense. He's God. And I know the way he feels about every one of his children here is that you're his favorite. Go figure. Go wrestle with that one. If you have the opportunity before the weather gets really cold, go out in a quiet, dark place, look at all the stars, and as your eyes adjust to the light, start trying, start trying to count the stars and get a sense of how big creation is and how small you are and remind yourself of what I just said. God said that you are his favorite. What? Jesus has brought us into a place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we continue to stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's grace. It's not, grace is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's a continuing principle. And it's, it's grace that God shows us on a regular, daily basis. So when God looks at us, he he thinks about us in terms of joy and beauty and pleasure. He doesn't just love us. He likes us because we are in Jesus. And if you understand the difference between loving a person and liking a person, you know how significant that is. What does that mean? It means I don't have to prove I'm worthy of God's love. It means God is my friend. It means this door of access to God is permanently open to him. It means I'm free from keeping score. The account is settled in Jesus. I can spend more time praising God and less time hating myself. And that's good news for those of us who struggle with that. This access to God is a lasting privilege. We're not just brought to God for the purpose of an initial interview but to remain with him, to be in his family and by faith eventually to see his face and to walk in the light of his love.
We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Seriously, we can. These, these words could also be translated stresses. When we run into stresses and, and, and hard times, we can rejoice in them. Why? Because they help us develop endurance. And God has a purpose for hard times, even though we don't enjoy them or appreciate them at the time. A runner has to be stressed to gain endurance. We talked a little bit about that last week. We can't expect to sit on the couch, eat chips, and then go run a marathon. Maybe drive a marathon, but not run one. That's not going to work. Sailors have to go to sea. Soldiers have to go to battle. If you're an athlete on a team, you've got to get off the bench and get into the game to find out how good you are. For the Christian, hard times and challenges are just part of the Christian life. And we should not desire for a trouble-free Christian life because God uses hard times to shape us. God knows how much stress and challenge we can take. Believe it or not, he knows how much we can take. And he carefully measures the stresses that we face. Remember, those folks who are not Christians also face hard times as well. Charles Spurgeon, the English preacher, said, A Christian man should be willing to be tried. He should be pleased to let his religion be put to the test. There, he says, hammer away if you like. Do your worst life. Bring it on. Do you want to be carried to heaven in a feather bed? Well, some of us would opt for that. Sign me up, king size, please, with the nice plush top. I love to go to heaven on a feather bed. But that's not life, right? That's not life. That's not now how it works. Personally, I would rather have God just come along and sprinkle a little bit of perseverance and a little bit of character and a little bit of hope on me as I sleep. I would, make a, I would wake up a much better Christian. But that isn't God's plan for me or for any of us here. Therefore, we can say soberly and reverently what we say about hard times. Lord, okay, bring it on. Bring it on. I know you love me and you carefully measure out every trial I have and you have a purpose to accomplish in every hard time. Lord, I will not go out of my way to seek trouble. (laughs) I know it will find me. But I won't despise them or lose hope when they come. I will trust your love and everything that you allow in my life. So these hard times help us develop endurance. When troubles happen, it just reveals what's already there. You have a choice, we have a choice to become better or bitter. That's our choice. Endurance develops strength of character. God uses these hard times to chip the rough edges off our character, right? And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. That means, hey, I I know that Jesus is going to come through. I know that God is going to come through for me. Hope is not wishing on a star, crossing your fingers or end legs and with your lucky rabbit's foot in your pocket or whatever. That's, that's not hope. Hope is a confident expectation. It's, it's a sense of, it's kind of a happy certainty that God is going to come through. That's what hope is. 
It's got confidence, and it's based in a person. It's, it's based in the character of God. That's why we have hope. So Paul says, hard times develop character, and character helps us develop hope. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope does not lead to disappointment. We will not get let down if we have this hope. For we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. That's God's down payment. In uh, the book of Ephesians, the Holy Spirit is described, the, the word, uh, most of you don't know Greek, so if I pronounce this wrong, you, you, you won't mind. Erebon, it's, it's the idea of a guarantee. It's a surety. It's, it's kind of like... Um, a guy proposing to his fiancée and giving her an engagement ring, saying, or a promise ring, hey, honey, I'm committed to you, and, you know, on such and such a date, I'm going to give you another ring, and boom, we're going to be married. So the Holy Spirit is like a deposited down payment, an engagement ring, a guarantee of what God is going to continue to do in our lives. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. God wants us to experience him, not just know things about him. Too many churches focus on intellectual knowledge of God without the heart experience. And that's why we run into these hard, crusty old Christians who know their Bible inside out, but the Bible doesn't know them inside out. You know what I'm saying? They've just gotten old and crusty and critical and they keep scoring everybody. But the truth of the gospel hasn't penetrated them. Luann and I did a little bit of uh, art gallery touring on our holidays. I just want you to know that I'm not really a culture vulture, but I did get some culture. We went to the Vancouver Art Gallery with our son Micah, and we saw a lot of Picassos. He's just a He had a lot of women in his life, Picasso. But I saw Picasso. I thought you should be impressed by that. We also saw a lot of paintings by Emily Carr, famous West Coast artist. She's awesome. And uh, I'll tell you about her another, another day. But the most amazing, significant artwork I saw on my summer holidays was hanging on the wall of our son Micah's roommate. His name is Ian. And Ian had got this piece of artwork from um, just an interesting character. I won't go into details. But I want you to look carefully. We're going to contemplate this artwork. I've, I've reproduced it, and I've, I've tweaked it a little bit from the original, but you'll understand why. It starts out like this. You're so messed up. And then... There's a line through the messed up. Can you read that? You're so loved. You are so loved. And that's what the artwork looks like on Ian's wall. Not messed up, loved. You're so loved. Now, some of you are going. Huh? What's for lunch? 
And you totally missed the point. So I got to go over it again. When I showed this to a pastor buddy of mine last week, I've got the original on my phone, he starts crying. And then I start crying. It's like, yeah, Nate, I get it too. That's what grabs me about it. We get these messages in life from society, from our spiritual enemy, from ourselves. You're so messed up. And many of us stay stuck in that. And why? Because we are messed up. We're on charges before God because of our sin and our stupidity and our selfishness and we're guilty as charged and we can't get out. We are messed up. That's our state. Someone comes along and draws a line through that messed up. Now, who has got the authority to draw that line? Now, stop for a minute. We're not in Sunday school. This is church, and it was a children's service. So I'm not necessarily looking for the Sunday school answer, although it's probably the right one. But think carefully. Who has got the authority in the cosmos to declare whether we are messed up or not? Who has that authority? I'm scared you into not answering. Come on, this is your prompt. Don't... Don't leave me hanging here. Who has the authority to decide whether we're messed up or not? God, through Jesus, all right? Why? Because he made us. God made it possible for us to be not messed up and loved instead and to find our identity in him. So think about that carefully, friends. Who's got the authority to do that? Only Jesus. You will get Tons of messages every day telling you, you're so messed up. You'll look at a billboard and you don't look like that person on the billboard. Go, oh, I'm so messed up. You'll go on social media and people will tear you to shreds or, you'll, or you will tear people to shreds or you'll see people torn to shreds and say, oh, I'm so messed up. You'll start comparing yourself to other people. They're more successful. They have a bigger house. They have more stuff. They have nicer kids. They have a beautiful family or whatever. I'm so messed up. In the quiet of your own space before you go to sleep, your last thought before drifting out to sleep might be, I'm so messed up. Or the first thought you have in the morning, I'm so messed up. Maybe you are. But when we come to Jesus wholeheartedly and repent of our sin and say, Jesus, I am messed up, he says, Yep, I know. Now you're loved. Got it? I mean, he's always loved us, but that this is our status in front of the whole cosmos. We are loved. We are God's dearly loved children. That's where we get our worth, our value. That's where we get our sense of, hey, well-being and living in God's grace and being able to dance even when it's raining even when life is hard, that doesn't mean you have a, a plastic Christian happy face on. You know, the old smile while your heart is breaking thing. No, no, no. But it means you have this confident sense of 
God is working things out, even though I'm in the midst of trials, and he's going to build endurance, and this endurance is going to build my character, and this character, it's going to result in hope, this confident expectation that God is with me, and he's going to work everything out. Friends, I can't emphasize anymore the fact that we find our identity in what God says about us. And that he gives us Holy Spirit as a deposit in our hearts to keep, this passage says, he pours his love into us. Some of us will only accept a trickle. You know, oh, I'm not worthy. Of course you're not worthy. Put out your hands and ask for more, you know. I really wish I could have given the kids a whole pile of chocolate loonies this morning, but I didn't want to get into trouble with the parents. I didn't want to look miserly. But God doesn't just give us a a thimble full of his love. He pours it out on us with a fire hose. No wonder we're blown away. You know, fire hose, it'll knock you over. It'll probably do some serious internal damage in your organs, but... That's how God feels about us. He wants to lavish his love on us and pour it out on us. So friends, think about this. Finding our identity, finding our hope in how God, what God says about us, what his word, what Romans 5 says about us. We have access to him. We have peace with God. We have free access to him through his grace. We can come to him anytime we want. He even uses hard times and trials to shape us and mold us into our character. Even that is encouraging to know that he's with us and he's working on us. So when these trials come, we realize, wait a minute, I'm not messed up. He's just working in my life to make me more like Jesus. He really loves me no matter what. That's what this means. I'm going to shut things down, though, because I could go on for another two hours, but I won't. I, my passion is that we get it this morning. We understand how dearly loved we are. And that gives us hope for the future through whatever you're going through. Maybe you're going through these trials and you feel overwhelmed and abandoned and no one really cares. We can relate to that. Jesus certainly understands that. Maybe you're feeling that way. Or maybe you feel like, this is just kind of some theoretical concept. I've never really understood that. That's understandable. Don't, don't get down on yourself. Don't start judging yourself because you don't understand God's love. Or you don't experience it. God will show you what barriers are there. And he will circumvent them and get around them to re- pour out his love in your heart. I don't know where you're at. But my desire this morning is for all of us to experience this so we can know the hope that gives us fuel and purpose for life and joy in the journey, wherever we're at in the journey. Let's pray. I've run out of words. Jesus, only you can do this through your Holy Spirit. I pray your Holy Spirit would come on us now. In the name of Jesus, we just declare this God's place, God's temple. We are God's people. 
We are God's dearly loved children. In your sight, we are not messed up. We are loved and cherished. So, Father, I pray that you would reveal your love to every seeking heart this morning. And if there are some hearts that aren't seeking, I pray that you would lovingly draw them to yourself so they can receive your love. Father, we do not want to talk about your love theoretically. We want to experience it. So Holy Spirit, will you please come? We ask your forgiveness if we have grieved you in any way or if bad theology in the past history of the church has prevented your spirit from having full reign in this place. But we pray that you would come. We pray that you would blow through like a fresh wind through this place. Fill us with a sense of your love and acceptance and blessing and grace. We pray these things confidently in the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.